0: If there's one mistake I promised myself that I would not make again going into this journey was to start a tech company without a technical co-founder. Lesson learned. And when I met Yuri Danilchenko, I knew we were going to build something great at Latitude. Yuri grew up in Russia during one of the most defining moments in history. He had a knack for tech and entrepreneurship since before he noticed, having sold cell phones for pocket money when he was only 13 and fixing friends' computers even though he didn't even own one. Then, after living in the US and getting his master's in AI, he moved to Brazil and worked at several startups. He liked the challenges of startup life so much, he ended up co-founding a business himself, called Bemos. But they eventually had to move on and Yuri joined Kazek backed Escale as CTO, bringing in dozens of new engineers to the team and scaling product development through Series C. In this episode, he shares some of the early stage pitfalls he fell into, How to attract and select tech talent when you don't have a tech brand, how to factor in diversity during your hiring process, and what kind of culture you need to build as a tech and product company. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam! Nice, man. Well, this is fun. Um, glad we could connect. It's a Sunday here, and it's a, a rainy Sunday in Sao Paulo and in Northern California. So yeah, yeah. Uh, as long as there's no thunder and lightning, uh, I think we're good. Yeah, we had some rain, had some thunder, some maritacas for
1: those who don't know. Uh, it's just like these giant green parrots uh, screaming outside
0: my window. Oh, wow. That's cool. I remember <laughs> some very thunderous nights uh, and days in, in Sao Paulo sometimes. Uh, well cool man this is fun. I'm glad to to be able to connect with you and have you on the podcast. You've actually been a host on a few uh, and so I'm sure there's going to be more and and I know that you're, you know, thinking of also launching your podcast too so this would be a good warm up for that. So we met because Thomas Florax, uh, my co-founder of Vivoral, you worked with him at Escale. And we've been working together now for uh, g- gosh it feels like uh it's hard to know. It was it 7 or 8 months now.
1: It feels like
0: years. <laughs> it feels like years. So take us a little bit back just to kind of give a little context to you and your story. Um, you know, you grew up in Russia. So maybe start off by telling us, you know, what are the things that kind of led you to technology, you know, besides the, the usual kind of grenade training?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up uh, d- during kind of really iconic times, I guess, in Russia in the 90s. So it was a huge change, right? huge from this communist regime for 70 years to something completely different uh and literally in in school like they came in and took the books and it was like okay these are the books <laughs> from the communist era and here are the new books so it was just like so so radical right the change we could feel it in the air but yeah basically the technology you know was penetrating um, all societies all over the world and Russia was not an exception so we had the internet started to come in. We had, you know, computers uh, and computer programming kind of started to become popular uh, and also the cell phones, right? Uh, not, not the smartphones back then, but I got curious as well about the technology. like, wow, you have all this power in your hand and just like as a kid, uh, instantly got glued to it. Um, so yeah, I, uh, back in Russia, I couldn't really afford a computer, so I never had one uh, when I was living there. But uh, I kind of started noticing that I started fixing all the computers of uh, my friends. And I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. How do I know like, how to do that? So that's kind of the first uh, idea that I had, I mean, technology could be a, a, an interesting path for me. Uh, it's, it's one of the areas where you learn, you learn constantly. And just as quickly as it's evolving, um, it's, it's just a never ending battle in terms of keeping up and learning, which is super fun.
0: Absolutely. And, and when did you start getting into kind of programming and building software and, you know, software engineering?
1: Yeah. So that's uh, when I was already in the U.S. I um, was attending college there and started taking some programming classes. So I uh, started with QBasic, which is like a really simple language. And I remember like the first program that I wrote started spitting out empty pages on the printer that was on the other side of the room. I was like, oh, my God, like this is so much power. <laughs> Uh, and did, did a little bit of university and credit and finance. And that so I, I knew I didn't want to do that by then. Um, and technology was kind of the interesting topic. And yeah, I kind of got to US and also crazy times, right? So moved moved there in August of 2001. And September was the big event, right? Uh, so that changed uh, the course of history in the in the US, I think, forever. Um, I was really grateful for. Uh, a lot of people around, especially one family, one American family, you know, the Trumans, that, that kind of helped a lot. You know, sponsoring my student visa and helping me through. So I got a lot of support, and thanks to my dad, he he stood by me and helped a lot because you know, education in the U.S. is not cheap. But yeah, I was just uh, kind of scared the whole time. It's just like I di- I didn't know exactly what's going on, what to do. I didn't speak English uh, very well, so it was uh, it was a challenge. I think
0: challenge to get started. To me, it's fascinating because there's something about people that decide to pick up and move and try to make a better life for themselves. You know, I love the story of an immigrant, right? Like your dad worked pretty hard, right? I mean, you, you didn't come from like a ton of money where you just, you know, popped in and all of a sudden, you know, you had a house. You guys really worked for it and your dad was, you know, had a, had a pretty good thing going back in Russia, but uh, it sounded like there was some challenges and then, you know, press the restart button. And so that's, that's challenging for anyone to pick up and go start over again. I'm trying to think about what I was doing when I was 16. Definitely wasn't done with high school, not taking college courses, and not, you know, then soon after doing a master's in AI and uh, and other things. So, when you went through that, you know, a challenging period of moving to a new country, you know, learning the language, working your butt off, like in all these different, you know, jobs to kind of pay the bills, and then, you know, got to get your studying done also, what did you kind of learn about yourself in that process?
1: Yeah, I think just. Learn that um, you can learn to be disciplined and to have a lot of responsibility. Because back home, probably most people don't feel that way unless you you know travel far. Like you have this huge support network. Um, you're just kind of gliding, right? Like, like you got the aunts and the uncles and the grand grandparents and your mom and and your dad and your brother and your friends. Like all this huge support network. You just never feel you feel like you're invincible, right? So when you go somewhere and you're pretty much alone. That um, that kind of wakes you up a little. You have to be responsible. You have to get things done. You have to get, get things right, or else like there's no plan B. Sometimes, right? So, um, I think learning that a little, just the discipline and responsibility piece, and also that you can push much harder than you could ever imagine. So like when you when you thought you were tired and you thought you couldn't do any more, that's like thirty <laughs> percent of what you can do.
0: That's a good lesson, and and yeah, that's something that. Uh, you can really surprise yourself with what you're capable of, I think. And, and, and when you put yourself in a position that forces you to kind of overcome. Fast forward a little and, and what kind of brings us to this kind of startup life? Because like you've been, you know, on the startup journey for a long time. You're, you're an entrepreneur. You, you like tech. You've been building products and building teams. And one of the reasons why we started Latitude was because, you know, we both have a shared passion uh, for startups and entrepreneurship. So tell us a little bit more about the what led to that. I think it started kind of pretty
1: early because back in Russia, my dad was already an, an entrepreneur. So, you know, in the 90s, the first day that the, the new law came out that you could have your own company, my dad was already in line and got it and started you know, build, building his business. So as a kid, my favorite thing to do was basically helping him out on anything that he needed. And I just absolutely love that. Um, and I think seeing how the company works inside out and just kind of seeing all the angles of it, it was really hard for me to go kind of back into the box, right? Like when you're an employee and you're just like supposed to care about this little piece of the business, it was really hard for me to do. Um, but yeah, like the first tech startup that I worked for was um, Integral Analytics, which is uh, a small startup that was incubated inside of Duke Energy. And we were building a smart grid uh, prototypes. So it was like one of the first functional prototypes in the U S and smart grid was not as known back then, but it's basically, it's like super cool project, right? Like a few, few people just hacking away at it and we're controlling um, energy, right? In people's homes in real time. So we had a couple hundred pilot houses and we could control their air conditioning, you know, the, the the fan, the oven, all all that kind of stuff. And we're getting like data in real time. We could send signals back. It was just like, (laughs) it was a dream, a dream job for any, you know getting out of uh, computer science school
0: so you went from academia to you know thrust into that like probably a kind of a different pace or a different kind of you know feeling um for you Uh, tell me about that
1: yeah in school i always worked through the school and some of the projects i could tell at least on the corporate side it was very difficult in those positions to feel like the purpose and, and the big challenge And the academia, you could feel that, right? Like academic projects are always like this ambitious, huge uh, innovations, but then the pace is really slow. So yeah, definitely I could feel the the pace. And I think that's sort of where the, for me in startups, like the amazing clash happens where you have the velocity, but you also have the huge challenge and purpose. And it's extremely obvious. In fact, I feel like the, the startups are basically like the most direct way to apply change to the world, right? So it's you can go and get your PhD and publish research that somebody's going to use later and like pick it up and maybe turn it into a product. Uh, but I think if you're doing a startup, it's just uh, you, can, you can quickly apply a specific change to society. It's just really amazing.
0: And when did you feel like you, you know, there's a calling to start your own business and what was the process of like digging into the problem and translating it, you know, to solution that became your product? Talk about that.
1: This was, um, at at the time, I felt very ready. I've led a few teams, like product engineering teams. We were uh, working on a really scalable platform that was powering probably most of large companies in Brazil. Basically, it was like a marketing automation platform, uh, similar to HubSpot. So yeah, we were sending... Millions and millions of transactions per hour and just like serving these large clients. So I I felt like, wow, I know a lot. I'm ready to do this. (laughs) But then like, as we started, uh, the three of us, uh, me, Mars and Jared, my co-founders, it was quickly became aware of all the other things that I didn't know, especially on the business side. So yeah, I think we didn't start like from the right foot in that that sense, because we basically had like a very strong team and we just wanted to work together, which I think is like a terrible reason to start a startup. But uh, we, yeah, we basically made like a a list of ideas. We started like pruning through them and we picked an idea that we thought was basically like the most practical and the most kind of doable, Um, which I think in hindsight, uh, again, you you should think big and like pick ideas that are extremely audacious. Uh, But in our case, yeah, it was basically an idea related to the pain that we were experiencing, right? So with the cell phone bills, like we, we were approached many times by our family members and ourselves, So we could just say like, save like pretty huge sums of money just by doing a little research and a little analysis. So we turned that into a product. We built two products, basically B2C and, and B2B. And yeah, it was a, it was a cool journey, two and a half years. Yeah. learned a ton about ourselves and about the market and how to do, uh, how to build a company from, from scratch.
0: One thing we talk about at Latitude is, you know, the, the journey is kind of lonely when you're when you're in the mix and you're building your company. And I guess I'd be remiss not to mention that, you know, like me, you know, I was brought to Latin America. There was a woman behind my story. Uh, you know, my wife is Colombian. We met in the States and then you're in a similar situation. So I have a supportive spouse and I know you do too. How did you manage all of those, you know, those variables that are, you know, that are happening in your life at the same time? You're starting a family, you've got a business going. How did you balance all of that in your you know in your personal life uh, alongside the you know the the kind of business aspirations?
1: It's cool that you mentioned this. Yeah, similar to you Brian, I was imported in <laughs> into Latin America by my wife met her in the US and she's been an amazing supporter and and partner to me. But yeah, basically when I started my company uh, not only i was not ready in hindsight but also like i made it super hard for myself right i i joked that i had like a new year's resolution it was like have a baby start a company buy an apartment all in the same year and uh, that was 2016 like pretty rough year i uh, definitely don't recommend doing all those things but i think yeah, she, she was a huge uh, supporter and also kind of like a sounding board right so because w- when you have an idea when you want to do something And you're kind of taken by it, which is a great thing because you're extremely convinced, but you also need somebody sane by your side, that's going to say like, yeah, yeah, great. Like, but can you talk me through it? Like, is that really going to work? You know, what are you going to charge? What's your market side? So I think having somebody close that you trust, uh, I could kind of like support you, but also ask you the right questions. was awesome. And yeah, like. As you get deeper into it, I think we were both not prepared as, you know, reading your book, uh, I also kind of realized that you went through something similar. I don't think we were, either one was prepared for the depth of the challenge and, you know, the the hurdles that we're going to have to overcome. Uh, But yeah, ultimately she stood by me and that was, that meant a lot.
0: You know, I I went through a lot of challenges as I started, you know, a handful of companies and, you know, in in our case, my first couple companies, we you know, we started a company, we built this big platform and, you know, we didn't talk to our users. And then we launched it nine months later and it was crickets, you know, I think I had like 15 users and, and, and it was just like, it was before kind of lean startup and before, you know, get out of the building was like a thing and, you know, interview your customers, which, you know, fast forward to today, and you're one of the biggest advocates that I've met of like being super customer focused. So, do you think that your kind of experience uh, at Vemos resulted in your just being customer obsessed? And like to talk about how you came to realize just how important that is and why it's important to you. Definitely Vemos
1: was one of them. I had another experience uh, back in the U.S. when I was uh, working on a project and it was, you know, okay. uh, quintessential like, oh, this is a social network for X, Y, Z. And then like we worked for two years on it as a side project. And our boss at the time paid the whole bill and then we launched it and nothing. So yeah, like I learned, I learned it uh, there. And uh, at vemus, I think the, the issue was also just being too technical of a team. And we were like just too convinced in our solution. We fell in love with the solution. So we like built it, it was working, it was the optimal solution. But then there were a lot of things that people were telling us, you know, the investors, the customers, like, hey, like especially around business model. And I think we should have been more receptive. And I think, yeah, definitely just kind of being very careful about which feedback you ignore and making sure that you're realistic about your business model, right? Like who's going to actually pay for this? Uh, Is that, you know, is that something that can scale for millions and millions of users? I think that was, yeah, we just basically fell in love and, and took too long for us to let go of the solution and start being falling in love with the problem itself.
0: Looking forward a little bit after Vamos, you became uh the CTO of a company called Escale which is backed by Kazek and you know is a nice nice growth story and you joined at a time an inflection point when you really ramped up the team talk a little bit more about helping transform what was really a, from my understanding was like a sales and and marketing company into a tech product company what were the most significant changes there
1: yeah escale was a, an amazing ride um, and the growth was uh, really quick so we had to adopt and learn quickly as well yeah basically the the main challenge I would say it was just like selling selling tech to the organization again because there were they were trying to do tech for a little while and there were some things um, that are already running but basically most people kind of gave up on technology and you know, like would throw rocks at us as we would walk through the through the hallways because you know things would either break or didn't work as they expected them so I think the biggest thing was just kind of changing the mindset. And about six months in, after I joined the and we just kind of rebuilt the team and rebuilt some of the products, I could start people. I've seen people in the meetings kind of start fighting for engineers. Like, oh know, I need more, I need more. Like I have all these ideas, and it's like that's what we, you know, looked, Ken and I looked at each other. I was like okay, so it sounds like uh, people are starting to recognize the value. But yeah, um, it was a it was a tough one. Uh, because cultural change of any kind, right, in a large organization, is hard. And you know, by then Escali was already two hundred people, so you have some inertia. And I think overcoming that was was the biggest challenge. You know, making sure that people understood the value, the potential, um, and kind of making them believe that technology was a path. Yeah, that was that was pretty tough. But uh, I think just by building the team that constantly. You know, wanted to serve the customer constantly. Wanted to understand what people are doing, you know, their daily jobs, and how to help them. And kind of extending that helping hand, that helped us a lot.
0: Yeah, I look at my kind of time running Viva Viveral, and I, I think about we went through phases where the pendulum would swing. Uh, in the beginning, we were very sales focused, and we, you know, we were signing, trying to sign up customers and get revenue because there was such a, a, a you know, it was a nascent ecosystem for venture capital. We couldn't raise money. Any investor was like, "How much revenue do you have?" Okay, call us. You know, call us back when you have you know X revenue. And so it forced us to really focus more on the on the uh, sales side. But we always knew that we needed product and engineering were just absolutely fundamental and critical. And the turning point for us was I remember having a, a conversation with with Nico uh, Sakazi and Hernan from Kazek about you know how at Mercado Libre they had kind of a moment of transition and. Marcos Galperin got up one day and he, he he moved his desk physically and sat in the middle of all the engineers. And I basically heard that story. And the next week, I did this exact same thing. And I made an official announcement to the organization. That says, "I'm now sitting in, in in product engineering." And it was a it was a message internally, right? Like, "Hey, we are doubling down on this. This has to be. We have to be a product centric company." Um, but I remember it was challenging to kind of make the transition and you know, I don't know if we did it perfectly. I think the pendulum swung one way and then it would swing back the other way. Um, and it, it's, it's always a hard, you know, all the, there's no perfect org, you know, a uh, balance. It's just something that works at the moment to get you to the next stage is kind of how I, I see it. But tell me a little bit more about that process going from 200 to how many people when you left
1: happy to share on that and just before we go into that topic uh wanted to point out you mentioned about uh kazaki and uh, nico and hernan um and you know andy and um nico berman as well so yeah like as soon as i joined escali we actually went to buenos aires and spent some time at their offices because they were investors at escali and i think part of the reason you know i was able to transform it is just wanted to you know mentioned them because they were so uh, f- so fundamental and like they they gave me so much credit and they talked to the founders so much like attack and they told the same story that you mentioned of you know moving your desk which Ken also did um to the to product and engineering area um i think it was extremely helpful to have those kind of investors on board and to have them constantly like telling their story right of how technology transformed Mercado Libre it was very powerful uh, but yeah in terms of scaling um yeah. So about 700 people total at Scali and the tech side went from about 10 to 12 people to about 60. So,
0: yeah. So five, five X on the, on the, on the yeah. team.
1: Yeah. Less than two years. It was uh, yeah a lot of, a lot of hiring, <laughs> a lot of convincing people.
0: And what, what were the lessons there in, in terms of scaling? Cause I know that there's a lot of people listening that are, you know, maybe they just raised their series, you know, series A or their series B and they're, This is one of the hardest things for a tech company is to scale product engineering and and do it efficiently and, you know, talk a little bit more about how that was and what were the the main lessons and takeaways for you.
1: Basically, like I came up with fairly simple strategies. Uh, I kind of wanted to build the backbone first. So I brought in people that I worked with before and I trusted, and um, I knew that it would be very difficult to scale kind of the culture of engineering team, the, you know, practices, the architecture if i didn't have that so i kind of started with building that backbone in our case it was about you know eight engineers like senior people um, and a product manager and then as soon as we had that in place and by the way' as like as I was building it we we're also kind of re- replacing most of the systems in the company so it was challenging but i think once we had the backbone in place then we were ready for scale and so like as we would hire and bring people on they would fall into like a very structured environment where, uh, it was like strong engineering practices, you know, uh, I think that allowed us not to lose, uh, lose culture, you know, because I've interviewed a lot of people, a lot of uh, CTOs as well that basically mentioned, you know, as you scale, you kind of have that potential of losing the culture and kind of having to go back and do the drawing board and uh, rebuilding it.
0: Yeah, you were a big fan of recruiting, and I want to talk more about how you were able to transform, you know, and attract engineers, given that you didn't have a tech brand. So we'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, given that you, you, you like interviewing, you're like one of the people that actually likes recruiting and interviewing, which not everyone does. What, what would be one interview question? If you could only ask one interview question, what would be the, you know, just one question you would ask?
1: Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I would probably ask, uh, what is the hardest problem you've solved and how you, how you did it? If I'm not mistaking, that's also something that uh, Elon mentioned that he asked in the interviews, but I, I ask that question a lot because as you go through companies and your experiences, you're usually faced with like a lot of challenges and some people are kind of shying away from that. Some people actually kind of confront them and try to be in the center of it, right? Like in that uh, challenge that puts the company to the next level, they're kind of like the ones who, who actually overcome it. And once they do, they, they have like a lot of details on how they've done it. So it's kind of kind of shows you the, the level of challenge the person has dealt with and how deeply they were involved with the company.
0: like that. And, and talk a little bit more about how you were able to kind of transform the perception of the engineers into seeing this more of as a tech brand, because it was really seen more of as a, a marketing kind of company. What What were the key things that you were able to do there?
1: That was a tough one. I kind of remember specifically one interview so this was uh with now engineering manager there at uh, Escali. But my first day at Eskali, uh they you know dropped me, like parachute me into this room. It's like, hey, here's like an amazing engineer. She's got another offer, has to answer by the end of the day, and you have to like try to convince her to, to join. <laughs> and you know, I did my best. Uh ultimately she she said she, you know, decided to go uh to the other company. And then a year later, she did a tech talk at a sky because we invited her. And then like shortly after she accepted the offer to join us and, you know, we asked her why, and she's like, well, the first day I talked to you, you just told me like all these ridiculous things you were going to do. And, you know, Sky was not a tech company. I was like, there's no way in hell this crazy direction is going to actually do it. And then a year later she came, like most of them already implemented. And she's like, my God, like this, this actually is a tech company. I'd love to join. And so that, that was a funny story, but yeah, in the beginning it was, basically convincing people that I already knew uh, just through the vision, right? Through what we wanted to achieve. And then um, I kind of see that as gravitational pull, right? So if you convince a few people to join, then the next people that are joining, they will talk to not only you, but also some people on the team. They'll see the caliber and that's going to attract, you know, even more amazing talent. And it just keeps growing and growing. It's, you know, similar to like accumulating this gravitational pull. And then, you know, uh, after, uh, Sure. about, yeah, in a year and a half, we had like a pretty decent tech brand and, you know, community kind of knew us already. And uh, we had people, you know, giving talks at different conferences and just kind of something you build over time.
0: And, and there's something I remember, I don't know, I'm going to probably not paraphrase you perfectly, but, you know, you, you, you have kind of a philosophy about the best people are, are attracted to just the biggest challenges, right? So, you like to have very difficult or challenging interviews and you like to kind of push people and your thesis is that the best people actually really enjoy that. Right. And then that, you know, the kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where they're pushed really hard and then they're like, Oh, I want more of this. Cause that's the type of person you want anyway. Is that, would that be an accurate kind of assessment of how you kind of think about those um, you know, that recruiting process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I could feel that myself, you know, especially when I moved to Brazil, I had to do like this, Big number of interviews, and you would just talk to some people that were not really engaged or couldn't really ask you difficult questions. And you would just walk out and be like, Okay, well, I didn't learn anything today. You know, what are the chances of me learning something tomorrow? And sometimes you would walk out in the interview and you just felt like, you know, drenched in sweat, like, my God, like (laughs) this person just took me apart. Uh, And that doesn't mean they didn't like you. You know, you could get an offer from that company, but you just felt like, Wow, like I know nothing and uh, I would love to join so I can learn from these amazing people. But yeah, this this also happened with uh, our principal engineer, which recently moved to Europe. Yeah, one of us, one of the best engineers uh, on the team, and he joined pretty early um after I joined this guy. And so yeah, uh, you know, asked him to describe the the architecture he built. Um and it, it was just like I kept digging digging deeper and asking hard questions until we got to a point where it's like, wow, yeah, this this actually wouldn't work, or like the, this, you know, this component wouldn't perfectly answer all the, you know, all the scalability questions, for example. And so I felt like in that conversation, we bonded, you know, I felt like we understood the challenge, both of us, and we you know got deep into it. And I think that's part of the reason why he joined. But yeah, like for you to have an idea how unstructured we were like that, that same person that we hired, like, uh, two weeks later, I think he joined, like, came to the office, there was like no desk set up for us we so were like all crawling on the floor, connecting cables. And it's like, okay, like, this is a real company, right? Like, yeah, yeah. it's. It's all good, we're, we're still setting up, so.
0: Yeah, I have another, I can relate to that. I had, we had an engineer that we ended up hiring and it was similar chaos <laughs> the first day and, and he ended up not staying. And it was, you know, it was the right thing, right? Because it, it didn't feel comfortable, was used to a different environment and you gotta get the, the cultural fit, right? And, and you, know, you, you build that backbone to preserve the culture as you, you, kinda, you kinda say and, and you know, ideally you root that out in the interview process, uh, but that comes with a more structured organization but yeah, I mean, I have a question for you. This is something that I think we battled with a little bit. I think we, we did a fairly good job considering. But what advice do you have for non-technical founders that are trying to bring on their first kind of engineering talent? How do you interview for a job when you don't know how to do the job? That's a tough
1: one. And that's why I often help companies that go through latitude to uh, Latitude programs right, to interview. Um, but I think you have to, you have to get curious. And I think Thomas said that in his episode, um, you know, in his interview with you, it's just because it's technology and then, you know, it takes a little while for you to ramp up. It doesn't mean that you, you know, can't learn a little bit about it. So, yeah, if you read a few articles, if you understand just some basic concepts, you know, what are the microservices? What is, you know, compiled language? And just uh, get very curious about that in the, in the conversation as well. Just ask very deep questions, you know, it's like, why? Why did you pick that technology? How did you think it was better than the alternatives? Um, how did the business change? You know, after you've implemented those features, and I think those those questions will still, you know, we still make an engaging conversation. It's really hard for, for a person to actually tell, you know, if that uh, candidate is technical if you're not. Uh, and also, just kind of something I wanted to point out is there are kind of two different flavors of technical specialty that we also interviewed for at Ascali. Some of it is just like hands-on coding, which is like a really deep in the code kind of structuring, right? Like the, how well the code is structured, how well you follow like patterns and and uh, how how well you can actually express your ideas in code. And the other side is uh, architectural, so more strategic view, how you can see like the components fitting together, how you can see kind of data flowing through like a complex workflow. So I think um, it's it's good to be aware of those two things because I think they are very kind of distinct skills. Uh, but yeah, just try to be try to be insightful and try to ask hard questions, such as you know why why you did those things, how it impacted the business, and you know through my years I kind of learned that the best way to measure engineering teams is through business KPIs, right? So if if you know that WhatsApp was running like billions of users and had like, you know, 40 engineers on the team, you know, those engineers are amazing, right? Just because business outcome was so great. So uh, I think it's a fallacy that, oh, these engineers over there in the corner, they don't talk to anybody, nobody knows them. Like, you know, they're amazing. I think very strong technical people, even though they're introverts sometimes, uh, are very well known by the business folks because they know those are the people that like remove the roadblocks. In terms of attracting them, I think that's, you know, just basically the the vision is is so important. So I think basically in the early days, you're selling kind of like yourself and the vision. So those are the two things, right? So I would highly recommend a lot of founders will look for me and give like the job description. And it's just basically, oh, here's a laundry list of what I need from you, right? But it's missing that top portion, which uh, I think is the same thing you need to refine for investors. Maybe for tech hires, you need to just get a little deeper and why you think technology is a core piece of the business but you need to sell the idea you need to sell the, the founding team like those are the things that shine and just say you know like hey like this business does not you know does not work or doesn't fulfill its potential without a technolo- technology a strong technology being present for this 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 reason you know? so i think those are like my you know two cents on how to attract technical talent early on
0: i like that how do you see the question of tech debt? Like, I, I this is a question that I constantly hear from founders. And I remember as CEO, you hear from the engineering teams a lot of times, like, we got we to gotta refactor. We got to refactor, like, is this code base? And oftentimes it's someone coming in and they see the existing code base and they're like, this is kind of garbage because, you know, I didn't code it and it came from before. And a lot of times they're right. But how do you strike the balance of, like, refactoring and you know, rebuilding parts of the infrastructure, you know, the architecture versus just trying to move forward and, and, and deploy code to move your, your product along?
1: Yeah, it's a very deep question. It also kind of makes you ask, uh, you, be uh, the founders be honest with themselves of what is, you know, what's really the company. If it's a startup, which is like a strong tech company, uh, then what you should realize is that technology is actually a part of your company. It's part of the value that you're creating, right? So it's not something to be neglected. Um, At the same time, um, you shouldn't, you know, over-engineer and and create, like, some ridiculous architecture in the first three months because I think it's just too expensive and you need uh, some velocity in changes, especially early on. I think the best explanation I've heard from this was from Uber engineers, uh, like, attended a talk from them once and basically said, like, Uber in the early days was just like a PHP app that was writing every all the all the rides in the single text file. So it was like, it was fine, right? Because they were just testing. Uh, so but basically what they said is like, you have to stay ahead of the business about a couple of months, right? So three to four months. And that's why it's so important to make engineers be part of like strategic planning and be part of the business because they'll pick up on those things and pick up on the uh, sales targets, right? Like pick up on the growth of the customer base and they'll prepare the... Technological platform for that, um, but yeah, basically, you kind of want to stay a few steps ahead because obviously you don't want to have like a huge growth and then not be able to support it. But at the same time, over engineering is is not necessary. And uh, by the way, like if somebody comes to you, my my personal opinion, right? Like if somebody comes to you two years into the company says like, oh my god, this is total garbage, we have to stop for you know eight months and rewrite everything. I think something terribly wrong happen because and you know uh, ideally the engineering team should be investing part of their time constantly in refactoring and improving and it shouldn't be something that you kind of stop the business to do you know so it's it's just basically i think at that time the te- the tech depth kind of went too far
0: yeah let's talk a little bit about uh one thing that we care about at latitude is diversity um you know in, in all aspects um and Escalé had, had built a pretty good reputation of having a good record in terms of diversity. Talk a little bit more about how you embedded diversity into your team. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, an industry where it's heavily male dominated, for example, um, in engineering. If you look at the schools, you know, the engineering schools in Brazil, uh, there's very few, you know, women or people of color. How do you how did you approach that at? Escale, and how did you embed diversity into your team? I got a
1: lot of support from Escale itself for this. So that, that was amazing. And basically our job, right, like within tech was not to ruin the diversity that Escale already had, which I think it's awesome. That was part of the culture since they won and they, you know, they had that very strong. And so obviously tech is an area that is you know very difficult to maintain that just due to the current uh, demographics of it. So we worked really hard with uh, HR um, and, you know, just recruiters to make sure that we maintain that and that, you know, a lot of different pieces, but, you know, from increasing the pipeline of female candidates, for example, to having women participating in the interviews, to rewriting our job descriptions, to kind of tailor more to that, to partnering with the organizations that we saw in in the market that were doing interesting work, kind of bringing them, to our office and doing tech talks and just kind of, uh, creating relationships with the community that helped a lot. And it worked out, you know, just, just like, uh, I mentioned with the first hires it's the same thing, right? Like you start bring those people on, they know more people, they bring more. And if you kind of plant those seeds early, then it pays off in spades. So, you know, by the end of it, we had, uh, I think it's still far from the ideal, but we had like more than 35%, um, uh, women on the team and three of my directors were women, right? Like data design and engineering. So that was, I think pretty awesome and kind of above the average of Brazil and even the US.
0: Speaking of culture and, you know, you, you, you guys bought a few companies, right? So you had to integrate these other companies and as someone who participated in a handful of acquisitions, you know, I think we did okay sometimes and a few times we screwed up. a lot of lessons learned in that process. Of the acquisition that you did, you know how did you integrate cultures, and how is it different in tech teams compared to other teams?
1: One thing I've learned is you have to be extremely quick and extremely upfront about how the integration is going to go. Right, so uh, the first one we did, we kind of still maybe shy, maybe didn't know the process very well, and just like took too long, and we weren't very upfront with the company that was very you know, being acquired of how exactly the changes were going to happen. You know, who's going to take which position? I think you have to extremely quick and extremely clear and if something happens in those first you know 15-30 days like so be it but you just kind of have to rip off the band-aid in terms of technical teams that's why the due diligence is so important is you know aside from maybe some processes and some uh, domain knowledge you also have the code right so you have technology you have to evaluate if that technology is easily integratable how much it's going to cost you're going to throw away that technology you're going to integrate it Or are you going to just like keep it as is and keep it alive? So I think, um, yeah, for all the acquisitions, our team was very involved in the due diligence process. And, you know, we literally like looked at the code. We met with the technical folks on the other side. And just have to make sure you understand exactly, you know, what you're acquiring. And if that tech is, you know, has a future within the company, if not, how are you going to position that? Uh, But yeah, you have to really build like the relationships regardless of the area, I think. So uh, that goes for managers within the existing company, right? like if if the two you know high ranking executives are not kind of working well together, it just like propagates down through the teams. And I think the same thing goes with acquisitions like if the high level folks are not, not aligned and didn't create take time to create those deep relationships, like it's just gonna propagate down and you start hearing things like, oh you know them and us and just creating that like big void between the two groups and that's just, uh, I think fatal. So you have to avoid that at all costs.
0: Yeah, I can. I share a little bit more about our experience. We merged two competing companies that were like of similar size, a bit of the arch enemy. And my lesson from that was we were slightly smaller in revenue, yet we were growing faster. I was insistent that the CEO had to be from our organization. At this time, I wasn't the CEO. I was the chairman, and I just transitioned out of CEO. So I, I made sure to have that in our negotiation. And when I look back just the cultural gap and difference in terms of how things were run at our competitor. Um, You know, there was a different DNA. One came from a larger media company where all the executives had their own office and they're used to flying business class and they would kind of have their little meeting room, you know, that was had, you know, fresh fruit and was kind of exclusive for them. Whereas like, you know, we all sat in the middle with everybody and it was kind of like a, a flatter organization and, you know, just a different style. And what we, the mistake that we made there was, and I'm sure Lucas, the CEO would acknowledge this as well. And this is partially my fault because I I was less maybe confident in, in, you know, coming as a smaller player, um, you know, merging with this other bigger company. Uh, We, you know, we ended up splitting the the executives. It was kind of like, okay, we're going to take this person from marketing, this person from sales, this person, and it caused a, just an ultimate slowdown because, then you had people that were running the Oregon in, in parts of the Oregon. They had a different philosophy, and and you know, and then you had a handful of other challenges that that existed. And so, when I look back, what I would do in these kind of merger situations is it's cleaner just to have like the team have alignment with what's going on. So it speaks to what you're saying too. Like if you if you haven't aligned those things before any deal, you're you're just gonna have unnecessary cost and time uh, trying to work through those things. We ultimately kind of rebuilt the team and moved a few people out and kind of hired in those positions. but it was a nine month uh, period where we you know where we kind of were super slow, and we couldn't afford that time because it it stagnated our growth so m A is super tricky. I think that anyone listening to this that's planning on you know acquiring a company or selling their company, uh feel free to reach out to me because you know we 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 bought a handful of companies, made some mistakes there you know, made some good decisions. And then we also merged a company and made a handful of mistakes there. So it's not always one plus one equals three. And I fully agree with you that the culture piece is something you have to invest in if if you want to retain the people that you're you're working with. And also as a side note, I think acqui hires are an underutilized strategy. There's some amazing tech teams that could really fold into a bigger organization. And I think we'll see more acquisitions like that coming down the pipe. You know, new bank buying, Plataforma Tech, for example, um, you know, that was a strong engineering team. And I think that there's, that's an underutilized strategy in Latin America. What do you think?
1: Oh, for sure. Uh, we talked a lot about this uh, at Escali, especially because uh, we had kind of uh, Red Ventures as a benchmark. They've done that quite a bit in the U.S., and basically uh, once we kind of looked at the market and realized what we could do with that strategy it was very evident to us. That's a huge shortcut and it's a muscle, right? So you have to keep on practicing. And like when we did it once, uh, twice and the third time was much more clear and much more smooth. And so the, like the whole team, the, the founders, I think the kind of the organization as a whole kind of learns how to do that particular uh, activity. And yeah, it's, absolutely underutilized especially right now in like when there's still a lot of kind of low hanging fruit um, in in Latin America of those companies that you can you know maybe didn't fulfill their full potential in the business model but have like a some very important um, asset on their hands I think it's totally uh, an amazing strategy to fast forward your business you just have to be extremely clear of why you're buying it right and just kind of focus your whole effort on that like if you're buying it for the team then make sure that it's extremely well planned if you're buying for the tech uh, you know, that's another story or if you're buying it for the customer base. So, yeah, just be extremely clear of why the acquisition is happening and just kind of focus your efforts on that.
0: Yeah. And for those companies that are like, you know, strong tech com- tech teams that maybe aren't, you know, uh, the business isn't taking off positioning yourself for, you know, a, a, an acquisition like that, understanding what the roadmap is of, of a larger company and solving you know some specific problem and then folding in it's a soft landing cuz you know not every company is going to is going to be you know the next billion dollar company and you know maybe this one might not be but the next one could be and so having a soft landing is something that you know uh, potentially uh, is, is an interesting opportunity for your teams that you've built. No, it's
1: it's exactly right. And like something that I thought about a lot, even with Vemos, it's just like lack of experience, right? Like we had an amazing engineering team we had this awesome platform. Cause like when we talk to our competitors, they're like, oh wow, like I have an army of interns doing this. You know, we could totally sell the tech or the, you know, do the equity hire play. It's just not planning for it. So by the time we kind of started having those thoughts we're like already exhausted, you know, two and a half years in, uh, I think just being more uh more aware of your business metrics and your situation just kind of doing things at the right time
0: how can we how can we get more uh engineers like what, what can we do to increase the number of engineers in, in in latin america
1: i think you need to start migrating people to that profession from you know other areas of the economy or from other professions you know, mathematicians or physics uh, professionals or growth or, or even, you know, other professions. I think a lot of work is being done on that. Things like, uh, you know, online schools and, and boot camps, I think is important. Uh, but yeah, just doubling down on, on training, I think is important. And also not losing so many, right? Because like a lot of people we train and that are amazing, we, we're losing them to the US and in Europe. So building amazing startups here locally. Uh, will definitely help retain that talent and maybe make some of the people come back. As we've seen, right, to attitude, a lot of founders are, you know, I'm working for Google or Amazon or Stripe and then coming back to, to the region with an idea and building a team. And then those people will call their friends from those companies to work together, right? So I think, I think we need to, like, train more professionals and not to lose the ones that we have. How do we attract
0: more technical founders to start companies?
1: Latitude is actually an amazing way to do that, right? Because I think as a technical founder, you usually like don't have a lot of experience with the other areas of the business, right? So you need help with growth, you need help with maybe business strategy or you know how to form your company and things like that, which you know, our program has a lot of a lot of those uh, t- subjects and we can connect with a lot of people that help with that. And also capital, right? So I think Technical founders are a bit more, um, at least in the latam region, they're maybe a bit more conservative, and so having that you know, kind of initial support from early angel investors or organizations like Latitude will help, like uh, give that additional nudge, you know, so they can believe in their dream and go after it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've been we've both been on this startup journey now for you know over a decade and working in in, in tech and and working in you know building companies and. That's brought us together. You know, we're here. We have this mission with Latitude, and I think that we both get the same kind of energy from talking to founders and coaching those founders and giving advice. And, you know, we've built a really the dream team, right? With you know, with the team we currently have across the board. You know, Gina, Tommy, you know, Jan, Gabi. You know, we picked up a couple. You know, recent. You know, you know, hires as well. So we've. You know, we all share this passion and belief that Latin America is at the early stages of its cycle. Talk to me about what made you want to dive in headfirst into Latitude's mission.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, very contagious, right, to talk to entrepreneurs. I think, obviously, you know, I've, I, I was a founder, um, you know, with Vemos, and it was very difficult experience, very challenging. And as soon as it was over, I was like, okay, when can I do this again, right? So it was like very contagious. But then talking to people like that... Um, uh, it's very, very enter- energizing, right? Because they have a big dream, you have a big ambition, focusing on that, uh, and you know, kind of twenty-four-seven being obsessed with that and building teams and building uh, something amazing, and just realizing the the impact of it, right? Like there's just um, it's really hard to pinpoint an opportunity to have such a big impact on the region because all the new jobs, all the new economic growth, um, and all these. Deep problems that we have in the region are all being solved by these motivated entrepreneurs. Um, yeah, from many different countries coming to Latam. Some of them are coming back after a journey, you know, and outside and just like uh, tackling these problems head on. Right, it's just contagious.
0: Yeah, and I think that one thing that we've identified is that there's so many lessons that we can pass on, and then also that other founders can share with each other. Right. I mean, we have this collective knowledge as, you know, as, as people that are on the journey um, you know, and finding someone that's maybe one or two steps ahead of you is an incredible way to unlock value. If you're, if you're raising your seed round and you've got you know, someone that's just done that and they went through the entire process, they can share that. And I think that's one of the things that motivates us. And we've, we've built this kind of give first organization where we're, you know, last six, seven, eight months, we've just been helping founders, right? Like that's all we're doing. This podcast is designed to help founders and, you know, there's a business model in there and that'll unfold with time. But the, the reality is that it's, it's incredibly energizing and we learn so much too. So it's like, we also get the education, um, you know, we're out here trying to, to close this information gap and democratize more access to people, you know, that are building companies in the region. But at the same time, we do it and, you know, there's some selfish parts to it because we get to talk to all these amazing people, right? And so I feel incredibly lucky to be on this journey with you um, because I think that if you look at the founding team, my background, you know, running companies and, and starting and being CEO of a company, you know, you with the deep tech experience, and then Gina on the growth marketing side, those are three of the biggest parts of building a business. And the three of us have our deep skills in those three areas, and it's a strong building block for these companies. And so as we replicate our knowledge, our experience... And then more important than just what we've been able to experience is bringing in the community and, you know, drawing them in and creating a mentality of, of reinvesting back into the ecosystem. That's when we're going to see transformative things happen over the next decade.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's like so many hard problems you have to solve in building a business. And a lot of them are something that you can shortcut, right? Like a lot of them that uh, you can ask somebody in the community, somebody next to you and just like save months and months of pain and, and work and potentially, you know, like avoid some really big problems down the road. So yeah, absolutely. Um, looking back, I think some of the things I've done, like, okay, wow, I could have, like, if I did that today, it would have taken me a month, you know, instead of four uh, or, or six. And I think just paying that forward, sharing that. And also, like you said, it's just things we know, right? Like every time we talk to somebody, everybody has like a unique journey. And we learn so much from people that are, you know, have maybe a d- deeper background in, you know, financial industry or, uh, hardware industry or whatever that is, and just like sharing that and creating a support network that really like accelerates the growth of these companies, just amazing.
0: Yeah, well, this is early days for what we're building, and I'm really happy to have you on the podcast and this kind of you know chat on a Sunday here. It's just the starting point for what we're doing, and you know we look forward over the next decade. The fun thing about what we're building is that we get to think kind of you know long term with what we're building, and that's the impact will be you know, tenfold if you think about, you know, not just what, you know, you're trying to do next week or, you know, next month, which is hard when you're the CEO of a company or you're a founder of a company and you're constantly thinking about that. You know, you bring on investors and you're you're worried about the, you know, the immediate results. We definitely have a focus on what we're doing short term and you've been a big proponent of getting the OKRs and, and, you know, managing through metrics, which, you know, we're trying to build that data-driven organization from day one. But, I think that we both feel really lucky that this time around, you know, we're doing something that aims to have a massive impact uh, and thinking in decades instead of just quarters.
1: Yeah. And that's also helps to have an experience, right. To have that patience. So I think a lot of times when you're just starting out, you're like impatient and you want to get results, you know, the day three or month three. And I think having a little bit of that experience is just having the patience and knowing that these things take time and knowing the seeds we're planting will take time to, you know, turn into that massive impact, it helps a lot, too.
0: Yeah, and also, when, you've, when you play the game a bunch of times, you can see the chess pieces a little bit better, right? And yeah. you kind of know, sometimes you got to just move this chess piece here, and then, you know, the game will unfold. And it uh, doesn't mean you, are, you don't want to go fast, right? Uh, as, as my friend uh, uh, Gigi Levy says from NFX, he said, you know, if I can, just to end here on a little Ru- Russian uh, note, since the Russians are the masters of chess, you know, he says, if I can move my chess piece twice to my opponent's one move, I can beat a grandmaster. And so it's not that we're not running fast, but we we're running, uh, in, you know, hopefully in the right direction, uh, with, uh, you know, the compass pointed to the, you know, to the, to the, the, the location we want to arrive to the destination. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what kind of latitude is we're, we're, uh, we're, we're that starting point for entrepreneurs on their journey. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining, and last thing I'll say is thank you for your feedback on the book as well, which is going to be dropping here shortly and you were the person that took the most time and read and gave feedback and comments so a uh, huge uh, recognition for you on the book uh, for for taking the time to give me the support on it and I'm excited to release that relatively soon here in February uh, so that uh, entrepreneurs in the region can you know uh, learn from my mistakes, hopefully.: Yeah.
1: Uh, it was awesome reading it tons of knowledge there especially like local to the region and the journey has just been amazing right so looking forward to getting that into the hands of more founders and helping them out with like a tricky tricky situations on their
0: journey well thank you for uh being on the journey with me so far and uh i'm enjoying you uh you know as as a, as a partner in, in crime here and uh you know as we kind of tackle this so uh thanks a lot for uh for all, the, all that you do for what we're building and and I get to learn a lot from you. So thank you.
1: Likewise. It's been amazing. Thanks so much,
0: Brian. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Yuri Donolchenko, co-founder of Latitude and former CTO at Escale. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and check out latitude.com to find out more about the Latitude Fellowship Program. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.